Today we are going to begin looking at the church in Corinth and just what made it so messy, because I have labeled it the messy church. And here are some things to remember from two weeks ago where we started out on this study. Number one, the Corinthian church is made up of ordinary people. Therefore, they have all of the same problems, issues, concerns that we as ordinary people also have. Number two, just like we saw with the Hebrew people at the base of Mount Sinai, when the Corinthian people don't know what to do or when they, when they reach sort of the end and they have to take a new step that they don't understand, they fall back on what they know. Uh, and this is not an excuse for their behavior. They make some truly terrible decisions that in no way reflect Christ nor the values that Paul taught them. And that's one of the reasons why Paul is so frustrated when he wrote them this message. That being said, it can be hard for us to remember that this Christianity thing that we're so used to was new to the world. And the church in Corinth, which already does us a disservice, because when we hear church, we automatically think of something much more developed and modern than what they had at that time. But the church in Corinth would have been the only church in Corinth spread out among most likely different homes. And the only thing they really had to guide them was their memory or understanding of what Paul taught them when he was there with them. How many of you remember what I taught about six months ago? <laughs> Daphne does. I actually believe that of you, Daphne. I believe that. So in this case, you would all have to turn to Daphne in order to help guide you through what was said. I mean, so th but think about that. And the longer that Paul is gone, the more distant his words become. But the one thing that really is going to, uh, I, I think, be established in our minds throughout this study is that the Christians of that time, just like the Christians of this time, are called to live a very different life than the ones we lived without Jesus. You know, we talk a lot about how Christianity is countercultural, and the way that often manifests itself in today's culture is we pick and choose the issues in culture that we don't like, and then we become really aggressive about those issues. But the thing that we're going to see is that when we say that Christianity is countercultural, it is countercultural in every way. In every way. It's not about picking your enemies and raining holy fire on them. In fact, the ethic that Jesus calls to is very different than that, isn't it? It is. We must also remember that we are reading, and this is especially weird for us, we are reading a personal letter from Paul to this specific group of people in Corinth, i.e., it was never meant for our eyes. It's helpful to remember that, that this is a conversation then that we are privy to, but maybe we shouldn't have been, because as much as you know, it is in the Bible and we take things from it, originally it was not written to us. We are a shadow in the corner of the room, getting to see what is happening. Did Paul anticipate that we would be reading this letter 2,000 plus years later? No. You know why we know that? Because Paul thought Jesus would have been, come back before now. He was teaching people to live as if Jesus were returning any day. So therefore, it's not likely that he understood we would be reading this today. But have you ever wondered how the Corinthian church would feel about all of their dirty laundry being aired to the rest of the world in the most popular book ever published throughout the remainder of human time? Yeah, it's rough. It's, rough. it's a rough book for them. It's a rough book for them. And even though 2 Corinthians gives us some sense of how they changed and what they were doing, we still never really get the full account of how this church in Corinth turned out after all of these things. 
Last thing that is important for us to remember is that the church in Corinth did not invent dysfunction. While some of the things we are going to look at are fairly extraordinary in their nature, at their foundation, they are basic human problems that get out of hand and manifest themselves in ways that we can't believe. But when we look at some of the things that are happening and we can't believe they would do that, we are ignoring the things we would do along those same trails if we followed it far enough. So here's some background information uh, about the church, some details about who the church is. Uh, number one, the Christian community had only been in existence for about five years when the letter of 1 Corinthians was written. And it's likely that Paul, I should have put all this on the screen for you, I'm sorry that I didn't. Um, it's likely that Paul left Corinth during the year 51 and that the letter known to us as 1 Corinthians was written sometimes later, probably around or during the interval of 53 to 55. Uh, if, you, if you're not aware of this, uh, um, dating biblical literature is always a guess. It's always a range. We think it was from here to here. And sometimes those numbers change over time. Paul was in Corinth for 18 months. Uh, teaching them the gospel and how to live a life that reflects Jesus. And after Paul left and after these few years had passed, Paul received reports about the different things that were going on in the community that caused him concern. And he sees the church at this point in time when he's writing this letter as being at a moment of crisis and testing. Which way will they go? They needed to make some serious decisions about who they were going to be. So let me tell you a little bit about what the city was like. Corinth was a prosperous commercial crossroads in classical antiquity. That's a nice little statement there, isn't it? Its location was on the Isthmus of Corinth overlooking the two ports of Sinecre and Lachaim. I can't say these words ever, but you know, I'm doing my best. Which allowed it to be a major east-west trade route between the Aegean Sea and the Ionian Sea. And here's what's so weird and interesting to me. You could sail around to get from one sea to the other, but that took a lot of time. And the isthmus here that they're talking about was so thin that people would bring their boats to one side and they devised a way to lift the boats out of the water carry them on land across the isthmus, and put them back into water on the other side. They hadn't invented canals yet, I suppose, but this, is how, this was one of the reasons why uh, this city was so important. Uh, their prosperous life, however, was interrupted in the year 146 BCE when the Roman army captured the city, destroyed its buildings, and either executed or enslaved all of its inhabitants. That's a good way to destroy a city. Um, and so the site actually stood uh, virtually abandoned until Julius Caesar uh, made an initiative to refound the city as a Roman colony in 44 BCE. But many of the colonists there were former slaves, Roman freedmen who would have discovered in the newly refound city opportunities they wouldn't have had anywhere else. It's kind of like became the reject city, right? where slaves or free people could go, and therefore Rome allowed those people to raise in prominence and power within the city itself, uh, which was a pretty unusual thing because they wouldn't have had the same rights in other places. Uh, and the city was still situated exactly where it is, so it became a new commercial center um, relatively quickly. Who was in the church? Uh, that's kind of a dumb question, and I don't know why you asked it. Corinthians were in the church, all right? An inscription referring to the synagogue of the Hebrews has been found in excavation of the site, but there is no information about how large the community was, um, and it appears from Paul's uh, writings that primarily uh, the members are Gentiles and not Jews. And you'll recognize, recognize this as we go along. Do you remember in the book of Romans how many times Paul had to talk about circumcision uh, and all these other issues? You're not going to see that as much here because he's dealing with people primarily, again, who are not from a Jewish background. 
But it made it a lot more challenging, because understand this, when he's speaking to a Jewish audience, Paul can assume a basic foundational understanding of who this one God is and how you relate to him. But if the church is primary Gentiles, he cannot assume anything. They have probably come from backgrounds and cities where they worshiped a lot of different gods. So even the concept of one God who is over all things is going to be foreign to them. And then to teach them how to live differently, again, the Jews had an idea of what it meant to be called out, to live differently, to be the chosen people. These people have no idea what that means. So there almost has to be a total re-socialization of everyone within the church to get them to understand that living for Jesus is very different than living as a Corinthian. It's very different. And by the way, you could enter any other city into there. It doesn't have to just be Corinth. We don't really have a size for the or sense of size for the community. We know that they met in houses, as many probably as three or four within the city. Um, one thing we do know is that there was a wide spectrum of differing social and economic classes, ranging from prosperous uh, heads of households to slaves, which at that time, and frankly it's still true today, it was very strange to have the very wealthy in your community coming together and to be associated with the most poor in your community. There was no other place where this happened in the way it was happening in this church. But that also caused problems, which we're going to see later, when people were unable to break the social rules of the place where they lived in order to live as Jesus wanted to live. Um, so what was their problem? Well. Paul didn't start by addressing all of the big dramatic issues, of which there are plenty. Um, and I think that's because Paul understood that these big things, while very eye-catching, were not the real problems. The problems were much more fundamental than someone sleeping with his stepmother or people getting drunk at communion or not leaving enough food for the poor. There, Paul was more interested in the reasons behind why these things were happening, as much as he addresses why, what they are and why they're happening at all. And he knew that if he was going to change them, he could not simply address the big neon signs in the room. Because think about it. Let's say that he just attacks these big issues. Don't sleep with your stepmom. Cool. I'm not sleeping with my stepmom. So that means I'm okay, right? You see what I'm saying? Like, he has to get to the bottom of what all of these things are. And there was no foundational issue to address that was more important than the one he chose to start off with in this letter. And the issue that he wants, wants to address first, which is at the bottom of everything, is the issue of pride. Pride is a huge problem in that church and he can't fix anything else if he doesn't first convince them and convict them of how wrong their pride actually is pride is a difficult thing for us to talk about in churches and one of the reasons why it's so difficult to talk about is that it applies to everyone but it applies to everyone in slightly different ways we are all proud about something, and we all carry ourselves with a certain sense of who we are and what we deserve from the world around us. Pride is one of the most insidious sins that exist, because if we have it in any certain thing, we are not going to want to let go of it because of its nature. We will hold on to it as long as we can, because it's part of what makes us who we are. It's part of what we think gives us value. And therefore, it sinks its claws deeper into us than almost any other sin we could talk about. 
So Paul dives right in, addressing the problem head-on in chapter 1. So I'm calling part 1 here, uh, you are inventing your own problems. Boy, could we talk a long time about that. Instead, we're just going to talk a long time about other things. But there were real problems in the world for Christians. They lived in a world at this time where they were not accepted. They were not accepted by Rome. They were not accepted by Jews. There was not a very safe harbor for them anywhere they went. However, that did not keep them from making things more difficult for themselves through the pride that existed in the community. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to start in verses 10 through 17. Now, we start out the letter with a greeting, I'm so grateful for you, and that's the first nine verses, right? But then he jumps right into it here. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. That's quite the opening paragraph, isn't it? Outside of the introduction, and Paul is not pulling any punches. In fact, he starts throwing punches almost immediately. And what is the main thing that he wants to start with and start addressing? We don't have to look any further than verse 10. The problem that's coming up and that's manifesting itself is unity. They are divided as a community. And you don't have to look very far in that to see that the reason why they are not unified is because of pride. Everything that follows uh, from, you know, verses 11 on through chapter 4, verse 21, is an elaboration of what Paul says here in verse 10. Don't be divided. And if we want to add our own tagline onto that, don't be divided by stupid things. What was dividing them? Well, that's an interesting question. And it's going to sound weird, but again, let's not get too crazy on judging them. They were claiming superiority over one another based on who had baptized them. And it turned into a weird battle of Paul versus Apollo versus Cephas versus Christ. Again, who invented this problem? They did. This is somewhat unique to them in the way that it is manifesting itself. And these events were not present when Paul was there in Corinth. Uh, it's evident by the fact that Paul doesn't really even understand what this is. And you can bet that if Paul, if this had started while Paul were there, he would have nipped it in the bud. It would not have gone any further. Because he makes it clear that he is not a fan of this kind of thinking. So these fights, these I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Paul, I follow Christ, all rose up somehow spontaneously within the Corinthian church without any direct encouragement from the leaders, as it were. This just happened. And something that I'm really curious about, which of course we'll never know, is who was the first to say, I follow something? 
You know, who was the first to say, well, you know, I follow Paul. Oh, I follow Apollo. Who was the first to do these things? Now, we know who Paul was. He was a missionary to, you know, all of Europe, basically, at that time that he could get to. Uh, Cephas was Peter, who was mainly based out of the Jerusalem church, but who also went on missionary journeys. Um, Jesus was Jesus. And uh, Apollos, uh, Apollos, according to Acts chapter 18, verses 24 through 28, was a Jew who was very well educated, very smart from Alexandria, and he was deeply grounded in scripture, but more than anything else, he was a very effective public speaker. He presented well, and he spoke with great passion and eloquence. So the church had divided itself up into these different camps, looking down on others in the community who did not fit into their camp. Now, we understand here, I follow Paul means that in this case, someone was baptized by Paul. I follow Apollo, someone was baptized by, by Apollo. Cephas is the same thing. The most odd one to me is Jesus. Why is that so weird? Because aren't they all following Jesus? It would seem then that some of the Corinthians must have been claiming that Jesus was their leader in an exclusive sort of way. You can have Apollos. You can have Paul. I have Jesus. It's the ultimate Jesus juke of all time. There's no coming back from that one. And it's almost like they are saying, we are the ones who really belong to Christ, but you, you belong to Paul. You belong to Cephas. And they might have even claimed that they had more access to Jesus than other people did. This is how stupid this whole thing is. However, I am convicted by the knowledge that we will self-righteously divide ourselves in any way we see fit. While we may not have this particular issue, although I remember, as maybe some of you do, that when you changed churches, you had to say when you were baptized and who baptized you, as if who baptized you gave you more credibility within the church than, than if, you, you know, if you didn't say or you were baptized by someone who was unknown. Um, that's a whole other story, though. So the church had divided itself up into these different camps, looking down on the rest of the community. And Paul regards this entire situation as scandalous. Um, so he asked some rhetorical questions just to get them thinking and get the ball rolling. Has Christ been divided? Well, no. It would be more precisely translated as, has Christ been divided up and parceled out so that some of you got more than others of you did? Who got more? I don't know. It's the ones who say they did, right? It's a very nebulous sort of thing. So the community's dissension has created an absurd situation. So Paul suggests this situation in which Christ is considered some sort of commodity or something to be haggled over is a pretty poor step. Was Paul crucified? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. But here's why that question is important. It's a trick, okay? Was Paul crucified? No, which means they were baptized in the name of whom? Jesus, which means Paul didn't baptize anyone in his name. No one, because he was not the, the vehicle of salvation for these people. <clears throat> so how bummed out is Paul about all of this? Uh, pretty, pretty bummed. Pretty bummed. The bum level is high. Um, in fact, he's grateful that he did not baptize more people so that his part and this whole shenanigan can't be carried on further. <laughs> when have you ever heard 
that baptism doesn't matter. I mean, with, within the context of like what we're talking about here and the teachings of at least our church, I mean, yes, we've heard it from other places, but we haven't heard, nor would we identify with what Paul was saying here. Um, does baptism matter to Paul? Of course it does. Um, but he goes on to say, you know, I baptized this person and this person, and oh yeah, I baptized this household too, but I don't even remember who else I baptized. Um, and why is he talking about it this way? Why is he saying those things? Because you know what is more important than baptism? Do you know? The gospel. The gospel is more important than baptism. When I was uh, at another church, uh, a, a grandmother from out of town called me up one day and said, I'm going to be in town. Her, her daughter and granddaughter came to our church on occasion. She says, I'm going to be in town. Can I um, bring my granddaughter in to talk to you about being baptized? Which I thought was a little weird, considering the mom wasn't doing it. And I said, well, sure. And she says, we meet every week. We have a Bible study every week. And my granddaughter knows the five steps of salvation. There you go. I'm just going to let you repeat them in your head since many of you know them. I said, okay. So we get in there. The grandma is sitting across my desk uh, along with this teenage girl. And um, she starts saying, you know, we've studied the Bible every week. We've been studying this. We've been studying that. My granddaughter knows the five steps of salvation. Tell him. Tell him what the five steps are. She tells me what the five steps are. And I'm like, cool. That's, that's great. Okay. Uh, let's just, let me just ask you a couple questions, and let's see what you say. Okay, that sounds fun. Okay. Who is Jesus? And she couldn't tell me. She had a very loose idea of who he was, but she didn't really know. Isn't he sort of kind of like God? So I turned to the grandmother after a little bit of conversation. I said, you know, I don't think she's ready to be baptized, but that's not a bad thing. You know, we can meet and study with her so that she is better informed and just knows what she's getting herself into. And the grandmother was furious with me. I have never met a preacher that won't baptize someone. And I said, well, until she knows the gospel, I'm not going to do it. I had to go later and talk to my elders and say, okay, this is what happened. <laughs> you know, I don't want you to hear something else. But I later then talked to the mom, and the mom was like, thank you. Because grandma had been pressuring her to get baptized all this time. Listen, there is nothing more important than the gospel. And the problem, you know, why we have a hard time wrapping our minds around it is because we sit, maybe you sit on the same side that I was on. Like, well, the gospel and baptism are not separated. Aren't they one and the same thing? Well, yes. However, because of pride, what has this church specifically done? They have separated baptism from the gospel. And it is no longer about everyone's need for Jesus. It is about who has greater standing based on who baptized them. And so Paul has to be dramatically blunt with them. Your baptism doesn't matter. It is in the shadow of the gospel. And without the gospel, what is it really? You took a bath. But it's not a celebration of what God was doing to you or has done for you. And Paul is so concerned about it that he ends with this. After the whole, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else, he says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And this, it's exactly what I just said is what he's dealing with. Your fights, even baptism, and even these things are taking away from the power of the cross. You are making something else the greatest power in your relationship with God. And it must stop. 
It must, because you have lost track of the entire situation. So do they feel reprimanded by this? Well, they're going to feel reprimanded a lot throughout this book. But there's more to come here. And part two addresses this specific question. What is this wisdom of which you speak that caused you to make this kind of division? Again, from chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. For the message of the cross... (laughs) Excuse me. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For Since in the wisdom of God, through the foolishness, I'm sorry, the world through its wisdom did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Okay, there's one basic point that Paul wants to make here, and that is this. Prideful confidence in human wisdom is antithetical to the deepest logic of the gospel. You can't even see one from the other. They are so far apart. And the proof of this is the foundational everything of Christianity. It's the cross. Human wisdom says that the cross does not make sense. Do you know why they say that? Because in human wisdom, it doesn't make sense. That an all-powerful God would send his only son to die for those who are basically his enemies so that they might live with him forever. Would we do that? I mean, number one, would we want to live forever with our enemies? No, thank you. I'll build like an enemy unit in the back of the house and they can stay there in the enemy unit but I don't want to live with them. And if I don't want to live with them, then why on earth would I give up my lovely son, whom I adore, so that they can come and live with me? It is foolish. It is. In this world, with our rules and the way we think and what we do, the cross is foolishness. And so therefore, we need to recognize that if God used human wisdom to make his decisions, the cross would have never happened. In fact, God would have washed his hands of us a long, long time ago. Which is a bit of a convicting point for us, isn't it? That human wisdom is so great that it would reject its only means of salvation. That's how great it is. That's how insightful it is. How, how wise, how wise of a decision that is. It just makes more sense. Paul used uh, Old Testament references in verses 119 or verses 19 and 31. And both of these references, I know we're not to 31 yet. But both of these are taken from passages that depict God as the one who acts to judge and save his people in ways that defy human expectation. Why is it important for us to bring that out? Well, it's because this idea of God saving an undeserving people by his own power is not a new idea. It is an old idea. Now, The method and how far he's actually willing to go is a new idea. 
But we have to remember these people don't know that Jewish God. They don't know the God of the Hebrews. They don't know the stories. And so they are out of touch with them. So Paul brings in these old references to tell them you are part of a story that's been going on for a long time. For God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. And at the bottom of this funnel, you are forced into this place where only human wisdom or God's wisdom can go through. And you are forced to decide which one is actually wise. Because if God's wisdom is what you're choosing, there is no place for human wisdom. You're going to have to accept that God operates on different terms than we do. And furthermore, that the things God does are not going to make sense all the time to you. But you know what? Your wisdom is limited. And it cannot see what God sees. It does not know what God knows. Because God does not use human wisdom. He uses his own. And his, his own wisdom propelled him, you know, to, to make a decision that we never would. He acted in such a way that we would have never considered. Never considered. And it turns out this way that God is acting that we never would have considered is the only way to fix the problem. So isn't it good news, then, that God does not think like us? If the cross is an example of the wisdom of God and our wisdom doesn't accept it, then there's only one solution. We have to change the way that we think about everything. How many people in this world are frustrated or mad or will never, ever have anything to do with God because they don't understand what God did or what God didn't do? How many people in Christianity itself believe that on some level God has to answer to them about why something happened? We all have this flavor running through. You know why? Because we're all humans. And this is, in fact, the way that we think. But if we are going to live as Jesus would call us to live, then our priorities, our definition of wisdom, are both completely upside down. They are wrong, and they prioritize the wrong things. They prioritize the wrong things. Why do you think that Jesus teaches so much, so much, about self-sacrifice? You know, if someone asks for your cloak, give them your tunic as well. If they ask you to go one mile, go more. Why do you think Jesus talks so much about self-sacrifice? It's because the kingdom of God is built on sacrifice. The cross, which was supposed to be an emblem of death, became an emblem of hope. Because God does not see things as we see them. The very basis of the kingdom of God is focused on God giving of himself so that others may benefit. And Jesus calls us to do the same thing, to give of ourselves. And that is not what human wisdom says. And you see it everywhere. You see it everywhere. Is that convicting to us? Well, it should be. But it tells us that everything must be reevaluated through the cross. We have to allow the cross to be so central to who we are that it alters the way we understand ourselves in the world. And we must not let our sense of what is wise keep us from engaging in the salvation that God freely gives to us and the world he hopes we will create. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 4, says this, Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. The wisdom of the wise will perish. The intelligence of the intelligent will vanish. 
And this reminds us of something. Isn't the Bible story littered with those who thought they knew better than God? And every time God showed up, showed himself their wisdom about what they knew would happen, became what? Foolishness. Which takes us to part three. (laughs) Part three I'm calling, uh, you're really not that impressive. Verses 26 through 31. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may what? boast before him it is because of him that you are in christ jesus who has become for us wisdom from god that is our righteousness holiness and redemption therefore as it is written let one let the one who boasts boast in the lord okay paul is building an ironclad argument here isn't he he's building an ironclad argument And here he wants to undermine any source of personal pride for the church. And the best way to do this is to remind them of where they came from. Weren't you the one who was living on the streets? Weren't you the one who cheated his partners to make more money? Weren't you the one who others didn't consider wise or smart or intelligent? Weren't you this? Very few of you were considered any of these sort of positive things. And by the way, those of you who were, were only considered that because they were using human standards. So of course they're going to think the rich people are successful and good. Of course they're going to think all of these different things. But the truth is, you're really not that impressive. Even those of you that could boast. And if any of you think that you have a life that you can take to the bank, it's fool's gold. It's not worth anything. Paul reiterates that foolish things, in fact, shameful things, were redeemed by God, given new meaning, and now stand for the very opposite of what they once did, which leads us again to what? The cross, a symbol of death, humiliation, and suffering, is now a symbol of hope, something it never should have been. Something it never should have been. But guess what? God did that. You didn't do that. You didn't redefine something for all of the world. You never would have considered doing that, using the most prominent image of death and hopelessness and turning it into a sign of salvation. God has done this for you, and you did nothing to make this happen. You understand that, don't you? You understand that? So what are you so proud of? What is it that you're bringing to the table that God has spread out before you? I'll tell you what. If you want to brag about something, if you want to boast about something, boast about the Lord. Boast about God. Because you know what? That's a more compelling story than how awesome you think you are. It gets to the very heart of the gospel. And maybe we forget this sometimes, but guys, the gospel by its very nature undercuts our pride. It undercuts our pride. Why? Well, technically, what must we do to accept salvation? We must admit that we need salvation, right? And what does that admission entail? I'm not good enough. I cannot save myself. I am in need of a Savior. And God gave me Jesus. It is humility 
that lies at the very acceptance of the gospel itself. And so the very idea of pride and the gospel walking together is ridiculous. It's ridiculous. But you know what? And Paul's kind of already told us this. Do you know why people get prideful again? It's because they start comparing themselves to others and they forget about their own need. That's what happens. And that, my friends, is again a very human thing. But our pride has no standing before the gospel of Jesus Christ. Which takes us lastly to part four, where Paul says, you know what, use me as an example. If we have to, just let's talk about me for a second. Chapter two, verses one through five. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Now, here's why this is such an effective message to this group of people. We have to remember that there are people within this church that are still calling them, or still saying, I follow Paul are still raising Paul to this pedestal. And so he gets just downright honest with them about how this went. You know, when he went to Corinth, did he know people would accept Jesus? No. Which means, as he says here, he came to them with fear and trembling. In fact, he put himself in danger, you see, to share the gospel with other people. Does he consider himself to be a great presenter? No. Why does he bring that up? Well, it's for one particular reason. Let's go back to Apollos for a second. Apollos was a very engaging, passionate speaker. And he had to be if someone would put him in the same class as Paul and Cephas and Jesus. He had to be good. And then there were those in the audience who heard the message of Apollos and is like, this guy gets it, right? This guy gets it. Who are compelled and Apollos becomes their person so that when it all comes down and others were not baptized by Apollos, they say, well, I was. And Apollos, being the new hot thing on the scene, gives them more credibility. But who is the one that started this church? Paul did. Paul is the one who took Jesus to them. Who took Jesus to them. And so he lays out for them, look, it doesn't matter how good the presentation was. Because the heart, the truth of the presentation is what matters. The cross of Jesus is what matters. And therefore, Paul claims, when I came to you, I claimed to know nothing but the cross of Jesus Christ. Because to him, and the thing he wants them to understand, is that there is nothing outside of the cross of Jesus Christ. And if you're struggling with your pride or knowing how to live or what to do, then you don't go back to Apollos. You don't go back to Cephas. You don't go back to Paul who was telling them, guys, I'm not that great. You go back to the cross. You go back to the sacrificing God who gave his son for us. This is the heart of the community. And when that heart stops beating, the community becomes something else. This is what it's all about. None of this has ever been about how great Paul is, or Apollos, or Cephas, or anyone else. 
This is all about how great God is. And God is the only thing that is going to turn their community around. But they have to do the hard work of not being so prideful about things that don't matter and put the cross back at the center. Church, this is a good reminder to us about what this is all about. It's a reminder of how pride, our own pride, gets in the way of us being who Jesus wants us to be. It reminds us that more often than not, we are cultural and not countercultural. It is a reminder of how easily and blindly we turn away from the gospel over things that are not important. And the history of Christianity is littered with people splitting from one another over things that do not matter. And you know, it's not so hard with a lack of judgment, because I understand where they're coming from. It's not so hard to look back now and see where was the gospel? Where was this need for salvation in Jesus? And that's the beautiful thing about this. You know, when we talk about humbling ourselves and surrendering our pride, it sounds kind of awful. Because in human wisdom, it is. You don't humble yourself. You don't tell people about what's really wrong with you. And it's scary to break down these areas where our pride has simply become a part of our lives. We wouldn't take a vacation to Humility Town, would we? Rather go to Aruba, something like that. We're so scared of it. But that is also us using human wisdom. Because you know what? When you humble yourself before God and you admit your need for him, there is overwhelming love in response. Why are we afraid? Why do we build these different things up all around? Why do we depend on our pride when we give up our pride the overwhelming salvation, goodness, love, and kindness of God overwhelms our humility, lifting us up into something else. All of this, you see, is a reminder of just how loved we really are. And we praise God for that, don't we?